Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, still reeling from the heights of speaking to KPCC and Ryan Seacrest, all within the span of a few dizzying days. Has my head gotten too big for my shoulders, or am I the same down-to-earth, approachable podcast host I've always been? Let's find out. We're joined today by LA Taco's Janet Viafana to discuss the ins and outs of the Justice 8. If you've been scrolling Los Angeles food news on social media or the web over the past few weeks, you may have seen the name Justice 8 being tossed around. Who are the Justice 8 and what do they have to do with food? In a nutshell, the Justice 8 are a group of street vendor activists who are being held in jail for reasons that many are calling unjust. Janet's been covering the issue in depth and is here to break down the situation, what it means for Los Angeles street vendors, and what's happening next. But first, a couple of things caught my eye that I wanted to quickly talk to you about, dear listener. From plant food and wine to cookbook to Sweet Lady Jane, accusations of bad restaurant behavior are running rampant, and I want to unpack it all just a little bit. I also want to quickly give the Emmy-winning food shows their flowers and take a quick second to plug some pretty cool things that I have cooking outside of the podcast. All of that coming on today's episode, so without further ado, let's chow down. Dear listener, I trust your January is going well. I don't know about you, but January always feels like the absolute longest month. It feels like an entire year is jam-packed within January alone. That said, we're almost at the finish line, and I cannot wait for February because that is my birthday month. More on that in a future episode, I guess. But enough about me. We're talking today about street vending. I'm really excited. We've got LA Tacos' Janet Viafana to talk us through the ins and outs of some of the recent developments with the Justice 8. There's a frankly appalling situation happening, and it's also pretty confusing. So I'm excited to have Janet on to just like break it down for us, answer our questions, and really tell us why we should care about this issue and what we should do to follow it. That's all coming up next. First, though, I wanted to tell you about a couple of stories that caught my eye. There have been quite a few stories recently about restaurants behaving badly. I think we all saw the news about Sweet Lady Jane closing a few weeks ago. Well, it turns out that Sweet Lady Jane may be not so sweet. So as a reminder, Sweet Lady Jane has been operating for 30 plus years. Um, and they said they were closing because their sales were down, but it turns out that there was more afoot. Shout out to Angie Oriana Hernandez in the LA Times who reported on this. But it turns out that Sweet Lady Jane was being sued for alleged wage theft. It sounds like they're denying all of this, but from what I can tell in the article, there are plenty of corroborating stories that make it sound like there was definitely more afoot at Sweet Lady Jane than just the triple berry cake, RIP. So when Sweet Lady Jane closed, I thought this is not the last we're going to hear about it. They're going to come back in some way, shape, or form, but it's looking uh, more and more dicey uh, for Jane and all of her sweets. Speaking of bad behavior, though, I did want to spend a little bit more time talking about Matthew Kenny. Matthew Kenny. So again, the Los Angeles Times with some excellent reporting, writers Daniel Miller and Roger Vincent looked at Matthew Kenny's quote-unquote crumbling restaurant empire. Matthew Kenny, in case you're not familiar with him, is the uh, owner, the sort of like celebrity chef behind 
uh, Plant Food and Wine, which recently closed in Venice. He was also the owner of Double Zero, the pizza spot from Venice, vegan pizza spot that also closed. He also owned Sistina in Culver City, which you guessed it, closed. The story is basically about how poorly Matthew Kenny has run his restaurant empire. It's it's really kind of a brilliant piece because it's one of those pieces in which the reporters don't even manipulate the language that much. And all good old Matthew does is pretty much just incriminate himself by sounding kind of dumb throughout the story. Um, he also, the reporters also use quotes of his from his book. And those also kind of paint a picture of a guy who kind of sees himself uh, or is really uh, buying his own press, as my Australian-born wife likes to say. Um, someone who's really full of himself, really buys the narrative that he is God's gift to this green vegan earth. But my favorite part of this entire interview is when Matthew blamed his optimism for why the restaurants he owned started to fail. He was basically saying that he kept some of those restaurants running way too long because he was optimistic that things were going to turn around. Um, he was like, I learned my lesson and I'm not going to be optimistic anymore. I mean, that just sounds miserable for everybody in Matthew Kenny's life, assuming he has any loved ones. I mean, you know, you just go up to him and ask him, how are you, Matthew? And he just goes, well, you know, I would say I'm good, but I'm I'm probably going to get hit by a car later because I am no longer an optimist. It's a nice shirt, Matthew. Well, you know, I uh, it was probably made in a sweatshop. It's probably not recyclable. And uh, therefore, it is not such a nice shirt. You know, sounds like a bit of a drag to not be optimistic anymore. But that is Matthew Kenny's solution to his problems. In all seriousness, this sounds like a classic case of someone who maybe is a really talented chef, maybe is a really talented artisan, but is a very bad business person. And it really had some harmful effects, had some harmful effects on the people he worked with, had some harmful effects on uh, the people that worked for him, that whose checks were bouncing, for vendors who went unpaid, for landlords who also weren't paid. Finally, the final situation I wanted to talk about was uh, Cookbook. Cookbook, which is owned by John and Vinny of John and Vinny's fame, a very respected uh, and sort of like, you know, I, I think culinarily acclaimed like grocery store. I don't know what else to call it. It's one of those like little convenience stores where they have produce, they have flowers, uh, but they also sell nice cheeses. They make sandwiches, you know, they have fancy snacks. It's all very expensive. It all costs an arm and a leg. This is an unconfirmed story. It's a video I came across on TikTok that actually uh, a follower sent to me on TikTok. And so, you know, I definitely urge reporters who are listening to go out there and maybe double check this information, look into this story, but it was really concerning. Basically, an employee of the Larchmont location of Cookbook claimed that, yes, the place is a shit show. Basically, they're not paying employees. Um, they're cutting people when the shop is super busy because they can't afford to pay them. Things like that. Basically, just like run-of-the-mill mismanagement. However, things escalated the other day when during a particularly busy shift, one of the employees was cut early. However, the employee didn't want to leave um, because uh, uh, things were really busy, that the staff was slammed. I think she was getting ready to leave, but was just finishing a couple tasks or something. And 
apparently the manager threatened to call the police on her. And this employee is an employee of color, a black employee, which makes the manager's threat to call the police all the more problematic. I mean, uh, it turns out that I, I think the manager did end up calling the police uh, once the, uh, the employee was apparently dilly-dallying in the store by saying goodbye to her colleagues or something like that. Um, so, you know, a pretty egregious act, I'd say, by a manager. And, you know, I, I definitely think that it would be in order for, if the story is true, of course, for someone from John and Vinny's management to step in and do something about it because it doesn't seem like the kind of business you want to be running. So as I said, it's not a confirmed story. I just heard a TikTok video about it. The TikTok video has gone pretty viral, um, so I'm sure somebody's looking into it. But as I said, if you're a reporter and you have bandwidth, maybe you should be looking into this story. Okay, on to some good news. Um, I wanted to quickly congratulate everyone at The Bear, especially culinary producer Courtney Storer, former LA Food Pod guest. I uh, highly recommend you go and listen to the, her episode uh, from last year, which was one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. Um, but The Bear swept the Emmys and the Golden Globes. It tied succession for the most wins at the Emmys, and it won uh, Best Outstanding Comedy. Now, I heard some people taking issue with its classification as a comedy. I don't really have a problem with this. First of all, I definitely laughed when I watched The Bear, um, but they just entered that category because it gives them the best chance to win, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's kind of like modern pentathlon, okay? This is a sport in the Olympics which uh, only exists because who knows why, but it's basically a sport where you like do horseback riding and shooting and swimming and fencing for some reason, then at the end you have to shoot something. Like it's a really random sport. But when athletes who are like maybe good runners but not good enough to quite make the Olympics, they still want to go to the Olympics, they learn modern pentathlon, okay? And that's how they get into the Olympics. In fact, if you and I, dear listener, started doing modern pentathlon today, we would be within like the top 100 modern pentathletes in the world because there are so few modern pentathletes out there, okay? What I'm trying to say is there's nothing wrong with trying to give yourself the best chances to win. And when you know that succession is going to be up for a best outstanding drama or whatever it's called, I have no problem with the bear being uh, dubbing itself as a comedy, right? It's all about maximizing your chances to win. And the most important thing is that the bear is getting its flowers and its flowers it did get. I also wanted to give a quick nod to Top Chef, which was nominated for competition show again. However, it did lose to RuPaul's Drag Race. I can't in good faith say that RuPaul's Drag Race didn't deserve to win because I don't watch RuPaul's dra Drag Race. I, I should. Um, but I will say I do think in general Top Chef season 20 was slept on. I think a lot of people now that Top Chef has 20 seasons kind of look at the show and think, oh, this is very formulaic. It's been done. We've seen this show. But I really think season 20 broke the mold. So I'm not saying the Emmys got it wrong. That's not what I'm saying. However, I just think Top Chef deserves more recognition in general. Okay, finally, last thing I wanted to say is it's been a really good week for the for the pod and for the LA Countdown, okay? Um, in case you missed it, I was on KPCC last Friday, uh, Air Talk with Austin Cross talking about my journey to eat 100 epic LA sandwiches in 365 days. Um, so that was a really fun segment. I'll post it in the show notes. And then on Wednesday, I was featured on 
on air with Ryan Seacrest. Yes, with Ryan himself, everybody. I talked to him for five minutes about my top three sandwiches in Los Angeles, which are Chichi's Gastronomia, number three, Moosecraft Barbecues, uh, Sloppy Moo in second, which is this awesome like brisket and sausage number with pickles on a buttery brioche. It's perfection. And then I talked about my number one, which is, of course, the number 19 at Langer's. I have waxed lyrical about it before, but I still believe to this day, best sandwich in Los Angeles. I'll post the link to that segment also in the show notes on air with Ryan Seacrest. Ryan, super nice guy, by the way. He also complimented the cadence of my voice, which is very much um, the routes to win my affection. Last thing I'll say is I wrote an article for LAist on the lessons I learned during my sandwich journey. I'll also post that in the show notes. I think that'll probably do it uh, as far as my monologue goes, as Father Saul likes to call it. Um, And I think we can safely move on to the big deal of the day today, which is our conversation with Janet Viafana. Coming up next. I'm very excited today to welcome to the podcast, LA Tacos, Janet Viafana. Janet, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing good. I, I first off want to say thank you again for inviting me to the podcast and providing the platform to talk about some of the things we're going to talk about today. Thank you for joining us. Where are you calling us from today? Today, I'm actually calling from my house. <laughs> I I work in Los Angeles, but I stay in Santana. I am a proud Santana resident. <laughs> well, that's two episodes in a row now that we have folks representing Orange County. So I think we might need to rename this the LA and OC food podcast very soon. <laughs> For real? Well, oh, yes. Yeah, seriously. Well, look, we, as you know, we've had a few different episodes so far on street vending um, and, and on many of the challenges that street vendors face. But for those who are maybe tuning into the show for the first time, can you give us a quick reminder of what the state of play is for street vending in LA and surrounding counties, of course, and what some of the challenges are that they continue to face? Yeah, I mean, there's so much info, honestly, when it comes to street vending. And of course, my focus have largely been in in L.A., Um, but there's been a lot of strides in the street vending community. Um, One example that I can give is, you know, the most recent one is the passing of SB 972. Um, And that was a bill that street vendors were long fighting for. They even went to Sacramento to advocate for the bill and it passed. And what SB 972 does is that it modernizes the California Retail Food Code. And the California Retail Food Code is essentially what sets the guidelines and requirements that are followed by cities like LA and other health departments in California. Mm. And before SB 972, the food code, according to advocates and organizations like Inclusive, you know, the food court was very much outdated. And when initially written, it was written only with brick and mortar restaurants in mind. So a lot of the requirements that they were imposing on vendors, you know, like they they didn't apply to vendors because they're mobile businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made it impossible for them to be able to file the uh follow the requirements and by modernizing the code you know to include micro entrepreneurs like vendors it doesn't solve the entire problem uh, but it's a step forward to getting more vendors their permits and it essentially opens up you know like the door a little bit it's one less thing they have to worry about but you know of course there's still challenges nothing is a one fix fix it all and Mm -hmm. um, one of the challenges that I think 
vendors are really facing is that there is not enough outreach. There is great organizations out there that are trying to do their best to reach as many vendors as they can. But we're talking solely in L.A., we're talking about over 10,000 street vendors. So there's definitely a need for more outreach. Real community outreach is needed. Not just passing out pamphlets, but literally step-by-step outreach that walks a vendor through the application process. Hmm. Because that's the other challenge I was going to mention is the permitting system and like the whole application process, it's complicated. Even for me, I understand English. I, I read through it. I've read through it many times. And it's complicated and there's a lot of steps to it. Not to mention it's, of course, costly uh, to get your permits. And currently, one of the main things is that a vendor needs a cart that is approved by the mm-hmm. health department. And currently, there is no actual legal carts made. Um, so it's kind of impossible. I mean, just two years ago, thanks to the work of Revolution Carts, the first legal tamal cart was made. And since wow. then, Revolution Cards has been able to give away many cards to tamaleros and tamaleras in L.A. But like, let it sink in. Tamal cards have been reported in news since the 1800s. And just recently did one become legal. And I think that that's huge. And Richard and Matt from Revolution Cards can really give you more insight, more of the inside look at how complicated the process actually is and how there's so much like back and forth that needs to happen between the health department and the vendor and the car and the blueprints and all of that. So it's not crazy. It's a lot. So you're yeah. telling me that there is a requirement for a certain type of, of legal uh, street vending card and that card doesn't even exist yet. Correct. So right now the only legal card is of course the tamal card and then the cards and the designs are going to vary, right? A taquero is not going to need the same cart as a elotero and mm-hmm. things like that. So I know that Revolution Carts is working on trying to get a permitted uh, taquero cart, which is probably one of the most street vendors that we see out there yeah. is the taco vendors. Um, uh, but right now there isn't a legal one. So mm. vendors trying to get their permits are going to having to be going back to the drawing board when it comes to the blueprints because the health department is going to come back to them and say, oh, well, it's missing this, 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 and this. Yeah. Even though there's not an actual part approved yet that they can follow a model to. What I mean, that is fascinating. Just to think that every time we see an elotero or a taquero on the street, their cart is most likely not up to the legal code because that card doesn't exist. How active is law enforcement in actually going up and enforcing this? So some vendors have reported weekly, and it's important wow. to note that the health department usually is accompanied by law enforcement. And from reports that we've done in the past, the health department has said that this is mainly for the safety of the employees for the health department who do the raids. Um, but a lot of the times things get violent. I mean, we've seen videos where they're throwing away their food or maybe there's an altercation and a police officer gets a bit too aggressive with the vendor. Um, and it's happened. You know, they've been sued before for a, the way they approach certain vendors. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they. but some have reported as often as weekly. Wow. And obviously this is harassment from law enforcement. That doesn't even cover the other kinds of harassment and danger that street vendors face on a day-to-day basis. What is being mm-hmm. done about that kind of danger that they face? 
Exactly. That's actually one of the things I was going to mention. One of the things that vendors are also, I mentioned like these mini uh, battles being fought, right? Because there is the permitting, there is protections. A lot of vendors are asking for more protections for them. That's one of the things that, they, that they're really asking for is for more protections. And right now there isn't really anything being pushed for that. I know that Enamorado, uh, Eden Alex Enamorado was one that was pushing that like to LA supervisors and council meetings. Um, but as far as something written down, no, there's nothing being done right now. Um, I think the closest thing to it, but it's not really involving security is, is uh, the lawsuit that street vendors currently have against the city of Los Angeles um, regarding no vending zones, mm -hmm. which bans street vendors from some of the most popular Uh, parts of the city and of course as a vendor as a business you want to be where there's people right so they're kind of like you're basically telling us don't sell in places that have a bunch of people and that's what we need <laughs> yeah. you know that's how they strive that's how they get by but yeah there's yeah. many mini battles being fought from no vending zones to more protection for vendors well you mentioned a name that's been in the headlines recently and that's eden alex enamorado Mm -hmm. Who is Eden Alex Enamorado? Yeah, Eden, who is also called by his middle name, Alex, is a well-known street vendor advocate who, for the past three, about to be four years, has taken it upon himself to protect street vendors from random attacks, be it from strangers, customers, or restaurant owners. And he has provided free-of-charge security for vendors who have been victims of an attack. He has held fundraisers. You know, all of those fundraisers have been covered by multiple media outlets. Um, and he has helped at the time that I had done a feature on him last, like an update feature. He had helped at that point over a thousand street vendors in Los Angeles. And he hmm. had a spreadsheet with all of their phone numbers, making sure that he caught up back with them, you know, on later days and checked in on them. But he also has helped vendors beyond LA and California, too. Um, by providing self-defense classes. And for some time, he did provide vendors with pepper spray, portable sinks, and body cameras so they can document any potential attack or robbery to make it easier, of course, to the for the vendor to report the attack and, of course, make it easier to identify anybody that may have been involved in the attack. But that's kind of who Eden is or who he became to be known for in the last couple of years. He's been at the forefront of protecting street vendors. Can I ask, what is Eden's skin in the game? Why is this such a, an issue that's so near and dear to his heart? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, besides being growing up in a community that had street vendors around him, you know, he mentioned to us for a feature that we've done on him, you know, that he himself used to sell stuff back in the day, you know, <laughs> so he he has an insight to to what it feels like to sell stuff on the street. Um, so I think he's passionate about that. And, and of course, the fact that a lot of the street vending community, not all, but most of the street vending community is predominantly black and brown, you know, mm -hmm. and he has he's a big advocate for for all groups, you know. Um, and yeah, I think that's one of the reasons. And he also I, when we initially had interviewed him uh, four years ago, he had said that he just he felt like nobody was doing anything. So mm -hmm. he said, okay, let me try. <laughs> yeah. And what, what first caught your attention about Eden? How did you first hear about his activism? Yeah. So in the last couple of years, um, 
I originally saw a video of him actually online. I think it was Instagram where it was in 2020 and it was in the middle of the pandemic. And it was a video of him and a security guard, security guard, sorry, um, talking about how they were going to protect street vendors and provide free security. And like, Hmm. it automatically caught my attention. I reached out to him and this came after a surge at the time of attacks on vendors that had happened that year that kind of pushed, like I said earlier, Enamorado to want to do this. Um, and he decided, okay, let's do it. I interviewed him about his work that same year. And at the time, he was working with a boxer who was providing self-defense classes for vendors and a certified security that would post up for free of charge on uh, at vendor locations. So that mm-hmm. initial story is kind of how I got connected with him. And ever since then, I've interviewed him a few times because uh, he's been like the organizer for certain fundraisers for vendors who were attacked. Yeah. So Enamorado has been in the headlines recently as part of what they're calling the Justice Eight. And as I understand <laughs> it, this specific series of incidents goes back to September 2023. That's when a couple incidents happened that are now under the microscope. Can you talk us through these? Yeah. So the incidents in question are actually three different incidents. Two happened on September 3rd and one happened on September 24th. The first uh, two incidents involved John Doe 1, which is the security guard at El Super in Pomona. And later that same day, unrelated to the security guard situation, there was an interaction with Doe 2, which is a police officer in Pomona. Hmm. The September 24th incident involved John Doe 3 and his wife, Jane Doe, who are the couple that was driving the car at the car wash in Victorville. So again, three separate incidents. Mm-hmm. Um, the altercation between Doe 1, the security guard, um, allegedly began after Enamorado was alerted by several street vendors that this particular security was harassing them. And it really started after one vendor recorded his interaction with the security in which the security when in which the security very aggressively gets into the vendor's face after he demanded that the vendors move away from El Super. And mm. I'd also like to point out and note that the security at the time of the altercation with the vendor the security was not working and not on the clock. So he was regulating these vendors off the clock. Wow. Um, after hearing of this, Enamorado, who often confronts people harassing vendors, paid Doe a visit. And to not make it too long, because there really is so many details um, going back and forth the same day, mm-hmm. um, to not make it too long, because there is a lot of details again. One of these inter- at one point, Enamorado and the vendor advocates come back to El Super where they are protesting the security who eventually is confronted, as we see in the videos, by, by the protesters. And in short, pepper spray is sprayed by both parties, the protesters and the security guard. And hmm. at one point, the security gets in his car and is surrounded by the protesters. And at one point, he eventually gets out of the car, and that's when things get physical, and the altercation is moved inside of El Super, where you can see um, Enamorado, and and I believe some other people. You honestly can't really see who exactly is throwing the punches and stuff. In some instances, Mm -hmm. you can, but that's kind of where you see the physical altercation happen. Um, In similar situations, so the surrounding of the car and all of this, uh, happened at the other two incidents. Protesters were exercising their First Amendment right to protest an issue and a problem. And at one point, things escalated between protesters 
and the dose. And the situation turned into altercations. Mm-hmm. And at the El Super, activists were protesting the security who allegedly harassed the street vendors. At the Pomona Police Department, they were protesting the arrest of Wendy, which is when they came in with contact with Doe number two. And then at the last incident on the September 24th, they were actually protesting a deputy who allegedly body slammed a teenage girl at a high school football game. Hmm. And at all three incidents, things escalated. You know, attorneys have questioned why the does aren't being looked at as as potentially being the aggressors versus the victims. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, when witnesses, who, by the way, were all law enforcement, when they were asked if they had conducted any interviews with anyone else besides the does themselves when taking their report, they said no. The hmm. only testimonies they gathered were strictly from the side of the dose. When asked if they questioned the dose about some of the allegations they were making, they said no. So one of the examples uh, is that they were saying that the protesters were saying racial slurs, which hmm. was thrown out there various times at the first court hearings, like racial slurs, racial slurs. And that was proven at least till this day that that never happened yet Doe one told police that racial slurs were said to him when that didn't happen and that's why attorneys are questioning okay so did you investigate any other claims Mm. before you know deciding to put out a warrant for the arrest so the last incident you mentioned where the law enforcement official um body slammed the teenager as i understand it that doesn't have anything to do with street vending, right? Right. So they, Enamorado was also, although his focus has been super heavy on street vending, I want to say in like the last year and a half, Mm -hmm. he has also kind of ventured off into just, uh, you know, if somebody's being called out for being racist or anything like that, like confronting and holding them accountable Mm -hmm. for their actions. Um, and that's kind of how they got involved in this incident. They heard about the deputy body slamming an underage girl, and they yeah. wanted to go protest it. Got it. So these incidents all happened in September. And then we fast forward to December 2023, and Eden and his partner, who I believe you mentioned briefly, Wendy Luhan, mm-hmm. were arrested. What happened? Yeah, so according to the press conference that the San Bernardino sheriffs conducted, and of course, based on initial reports, all activists were arrested on or around 4 to 5 a.m. in the morning on Thursday, December 14th. So it's officially been a month since they were arrested. They Mm. had a warrant for their arrest, and they were all arrested at their homes. And these arrests, according to law enforcement, were part of an operation called Operation Accountability, and it involved um multiple law enforcement agencies so it involved San Bernardino, Pavona PD, Fontana PD, Upland PD and Victorville PD. So all departments are cities where some of these protests happened at. Mm-hmm. And this operation uh, accountability essentially revolves around social media and protests and interactions that the group and individuals Uh, had and they essentially said in their press conference that quote the group violated the law extending beyond the first amendment so basically and that what they were doing does not fall under the first amendment right that they did too much essentially Mm -hmm. so basically project accountability operation accountability is this 
coordinated effort by all of these police departments to target these activists who are being called the Justice Eight, right? And as you just said, basically the accusation is they have crossed the line of the First Amendment into what they are alleging is violence or what? Yes. Essentially, yes. Under the umbrella of violence. Hmm. Um, You know, and now that the activists involved, you know, just quickly to name uh, to name a few of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were dubbed, like you said, the Justice Aid by the community uh, because they all together and individually have contributed to their communities. And this involves, of course, Enamorado, his partner, Wendy, who has done security for vendors in the past, Gulit mm-hmm. Acevedo, also known as Jaguar. He's an educator. And also uh, part of the Justice Aid is David Chavez, Edwin Peña, Stephanie Mesquita, Fernando Lopez, and Vanessa Carrasco. And mm. again, these are folks that are known, according to their peers, to have helped vendors in their communities and who have contributed in making positive changes in their prospective communities, so together and separately, um, which is what makes their arrest and no bill kind of shocking to a lot of their supporters. It definitely blindsided some of them. Yeah. And so December 14th, all of these eight are arrested. What has transpired since? Yeah, I mean, they've been in jail for a month. And, you know, families are continuing to ask for, you know, donations for their attorneys, of course, uh, hiring attorneys and lawyers and all of that is expensive. A lot of these people do have families, you know, that they that they themselves were like the sole providers for. Um, so getting them out, I think, has been one of the main goals of the families and of course the attorneys mm-hmm. um as far as like what has happened since they've been in there i mean i can't directly you know say that it's because they've been in there but um you know since their arrest i have had i'm part of a group chat that was created for uh, it was an emergency group chat that was created for street vendors in south los angeles and this was an emergency chat that was created because for a time there, there was like multiple attacks that were happening within the same week. Like food mm-hmm. trucks and uh, street vendor stands were being robbed at gunpoint by a group of people that seemed to be the same people. And and so this group chat was created. I was just added just to kind of be alerted to something happening. And since the arrest, it's gone off twice already. You know, and it just makes you think, again, I can't correlate it to them being inside, but it makes you think a lot of the questions that advocates are saying is, so what's going to happen to vendors? Like, who's mm-hmm. going to protect them? If it's not them, the pe- the main people that have been at the forefront of this, who's going to protect them now? You know, luckily, there's still people who worked with a lot of these advocates that are, or the just state that are willing to, you know, go and stand there and be sec- do security for vendors. But it just, it does make you question, what is the repercussions on the streets yeah. of them being inside? Yeah, if they're, if they're protect, if the street vendors protectors are gone, you know, what happens then? That's a, that's a great question. Not one I had thought about. So thank you for bringing that up. I do want to spend just a moment trying to really unpack what mm-hmm. the argument is from the other side, for, or I should say from the side of those who are accusing the Justice 8 of basically taking things too far. You know, mm-hmm. one thing that st- stuck out to me is um, I read that the presiding judge in one of the preliminary hearings, Judge Zahara Arredondo, 
referred to some of Enamorado's tactics as quote as quote as quote unquote humiliating. Um, I mm-hmm. believe um, a, a piece by Nathan Solis mentioned that uh, there was a video of one of the alleged victims, who I believe was the security guard, if I'm not mistaken, um, who was forced to apologize to Enamorado while on their knees, um, mm-hmm. and you know that's what the judge called quote unquote humiliating. Right. Is, is, is that the main argument being used here? That basically the tactics are, as we said before, crossing into violence. Is this more a matter of just law enforcement being on the lookout for the moment that these uh, that these activists even even seemingly cross a line to be able to jump in and crack down? That's that's a little bit what it feels like to me. That's definitely what it feels like to a lot of people, um, for sure. Um, part of what you mentioned from Nathan Solis's article is is a big part of that. Um, essentially, also the use of like we in on live transmissions. So like we mm-hmm. are going here next and things like that. So enamorado in his lives a lot of the times would say, "Oh, here's where we're going." The use of we, we, we. So not just me, but like mm-hmm. him saying we. Um, um, and of course, the blocking of vehicles and demanding some some of the folk to get out of their car. And of course, the physical altercations and alleged pleading from the victims, uh, according to the judge, can fall under separately, not altogether, but separately can fall under conspiracy and false imprisonment, which I believe are probably the biggest charges against them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's part of some of the biggest charges against them. But yes, it includes that incident that was mentioned where basically. They don't agree with how they're doing things. Uh, they yeah. believe it's too aggressive and going too far. And what do supporters of the Justice Aid say in response to that? How do they defend something like the, you know, the quote unquote alleged victim giving a forced apology? Yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've seen the supporters at court, but I've also seen what has transpired online, and mm-hmm. of course, people are divided. Um, there's people who straight up just say, nah, they're guilty. And then there's people who say, you know what? I may not agree with the way they do things, but it has worked. It has created yeah. change. So maybe it's a bit more in your face, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. And then, of course, you have family members and people who are very close to them who are simply saying, you know, they're upset. They're they're upset. You know, when you were in the courtroom and the whether it's the judge or the prosecutor is saying something that one of their relatives has done or said and they don't agree with it you see them in the courtroom you know shaking their head in disagreement you you see also the activists the justice aid who are present in the court you know shaking their head and just confused as to some of the claims that are being said about them yeah um again it's kind of all over the place but for the most part people are wanting them out they want them out on bail yeah um often in the court when testimony is given and yeah when they don't agree like i said that they shake their heads at the last court hearing is when we first got to hear from enamorado who after the court was dismissed and bell was once again denied he yelled this isn't fair even murderers get bail um he also yelled you know that this wouldn't have happened if if we hadn't sued Fontana according to him referencing to a civil rights lawsuit filed against the city of Fontana in early December weeks before their arrest and the mm. lawsuit alleges that the city's treatment of street vendors and those who support them was unfair so 
there's a lot of moving parts and I can see how some people or why some people fall to the conclusion that this is retaliation because, you know, these people were very involved in protesting in a lot of these cities where these departments um, that are part of the investigation. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of them think it's retaliation. What is the justification that the court is giving for not granting the Justice 8 bail? I mean, I think Inamorado has makes a great point. Even murderers get bail. Right. Um, it Basically, the judge has said that she doesn't believe that it's in the best interest of the community. And she doesn't feel like she would be protecting the community or the public or the alleged victims if they were let out based on what she has seen and heard in court. So it's not like she gives this big explanation, but essentially she's saying it's not safe for them Hmm. to be let out. And the lawyers and attorneys have, you know, requested like kind of like the same bell as not the same bell, but the same requirements as Jaguar got, which were, okay, you're let out on bail, but you're not allowed to be online. You're not allowed to talk about the case. You're not allowed to talk to victims. You're not allowed to talk to even the rest of the Justice 8. You're simply just, you're out, but you can't, you know, you can't talk. But the judge has continued to deny the bell till this day. And and usually, um, again, she's stating because it's not safe for the public. Right. And just to be clear, that was Ghoulit, who also goes by Jaguar, who has been granted bail. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what is happening next here? What what can people who are following this uh, issue or who want to start following this issue expect to see, or or what are some sort of coming milestones that they can expect? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the justice they are still having court. Uh, their next court appearance is this Friday at eight at eight a.m. And this is where they will be arraigned, and they will be able to, according to an attorney, they'll be able to plea a new no guilty plea. Hmm. And according to the attorney, uh, this is when they can potentially ask for bail again and also ask for a speedy uh, trial. Now, the Justice 8 have been split up. At the end of the preliminary hearing last week, Acevedo, a.k.a. Jaguar, um, his charges were in large part dropped. And the one charge he had remaining was reduced to a misdemeanor. So now he will be having court separate from now on. And his court date is tomorrow at 8 a.m. So Jaguar has a court date tomorrow at 8 a.m. And then the rest of the Justice 8 will have court on Friday, this Friday at 8 a.m. And that's when, again, the family are really hoping that some type of bill is set. Got it. So when this episode publishes on Friday, we will know if the Justice 8 have been granted bail. Correct. Yes. We should know. Depending on how long the court lasts, we should know latest uh, by 4.30. Got it. Got it. Well, we'll be sure to post a link in the show notes about, well, at least to LA Taco so that folks can can follow the story. What about in the broader street vending saga of Los Los Angeles and and, and the surrounding communities? Are there any milestones or developments that folks should be on the lookout for? Yeah, like I mentioned, you know, stay up to date with the lawsuits happening, like the no street vending zones. I think that one's super important. Um, A lot of these places that they're trying to remove them from are very popular places, not just to the community, but to the vendors. Um, So definitely stay up to date with that lawsuit that's happening and always support your street vendors, you know, to whatever capacity you are able to buy from them, get used to tipping vendors, 
connect with your local vendors and simply ask them, you know, how they're doing. If they are your local vendor, exchange numbers and let them know should something happen, feel free to call me, you know. I always tell people, you maybe not be able to help them directly, but maybe you can direct them to somebody who can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, just building community within your own community. I think that's important. And let's see. And just, you know, support. If you see something, go down and help. Keep, you know, keep yourself safe, of course, and keep that in mind. But don't just, you know, sit there and watch. If something happens, record it and help the vendor out. But yeah, just stay up to date. And right now, I think the best thing that people can do, especially considering uh, the safety of vendors, is just making sure that they're connecting with their local vendors and ensuring that should something happen, that they can help, you know? Especially while the Justice Aid aren't aren't on the streets and are, are doing the work themselves. I think it's on all of us to sort of step up a little bit. I think that's a great point. Well, I, I did want to hear a little bit about you too, Janet. I mean, you've been covering this issue for quite a while. How did you how did you get started on this beat? Yeah, so uh street vending, I started covering street vending just casually in 2020. I've always been interested in it because I myself grew up you know, in, in a community where there's a lot of vendors. I have family members who are vendors here in, in LA, but also in, in Mexico. And mm-hmm. my dad used to be a vendor in Mexico. So I'm very super close <laughs> to the street vending subject. Didn't realize it would appear in, in my work as much as it has, but I'm very happy to have been involved. I think it's an, it's such an important topic that can easily go away. And I'm I'm more than happy to stay on top of it and just make sure that we all are are informed of what's happening. And if we don't disagree, people can choose to do, you know, what they want to do with that information. Yeah, yeah totally. And and what other uh topics are you covering when you're not covering street vending? Yeah, so community based stories featuring uh local businesses, um Food, of course, it's LA tacos. So of course, I cover food. Uh, we do guides, and then also just community-based stories. Depending on what it is, I love to highlight issues that are happening in communities. But I also like to highlight the people within those communities that are saying, you know what, maybe officials aren't helping us, so we're taking matters into our own hands. And I love to highlight folk like that because they often go you know, like get lost in the shadows. And I think their work is super, super important. So that's a lot of the work that I do is just highlighting issues, but also highlighting who is working to make those issues change. Yeah, hundred percent. And one question that we like to ask all our guests is where are you enjoying eating these days? Ooh, <laughs> that's such a tough question. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is, it is such a tough question, especially working for LA Taco where we literally eat everywhere. <laughs> Right. Um, I I love how I've asked you some like really tough questions today about the justice system (laughs) and about like legislative matters. And this is the question that stumps you. No, yes. It's just, it is such uh, a hard question. I'm trying to think we, okay. So I'll say the latest place that we've gone to eat and I actually really enjoyed it. It was my first time eating there in Long Beach. It's called El Barrio Cantina. And they serve great, great food, Mexican food, uh, great mezcales. Um, it's just a really good vibe. It's in Long Beach. Um, as far as vendors go, oh, man, we actually have an upcoming list on vendors that you can visit. And I'm really excited for that because, you know, when it comes to vendor highlighting vendors, we're very cautious about who we're highlighting and making sure that they're OK with us publishing them because, you know, so many eyes 
are on LA Talk Show sometimes. We may mean we may not be the biggest, but people are definitely reading and watching. You're and up we there. Don't, yeah, like we never want to, you know, burn out a vendor. Um, in, yeah. in other words, <laughs> but yeah, there's so many places. Check out literally any of our guides at LA Talk Show. Of course, I got to plug them in because there's some really good spots, both in LA and OC. So. Yeah. Well, wait, I wanted to ask you about that real quick about burning out vendors, because mm-hmm. I, I've seen this conversation happen a little bit online, uh, especially when like influencers go to vendors, maybe among the first sort of like folks with high followings who are visiting those vendors. I've seen mm-hmm. it in the comments like, you know, hey, bro, don't blow up these people's spot or like don't, you know, people almost like uh, criticizing the influencer for going there and for publicizing it. And I've always taken that more as like, oh, the the, the people who are in the know just don't want to wait in line. But you're saying mm-hmm. that there's actually some real like, you know, harm that can be done to vendors if if they're sort of like over capacity. I mean, yes. So one of them is definitely, you know, locals wanting to gatekeep their favorite spot, which is totally understandable. Nobody wants to wait in long lines. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that could happen if you just have, a, let's say, a food influencer, just any influencer, just with a large following that maybe doesn't know the ins and outs about street vending, you could potentially be putting a video out that seems fun, right? Like, or you have the good and you have good intentions of showcasing this vendor. But one, I always wonder if they ask for permission, you know, to record mm. them. And two, if they thoroughly explain what this can bring so that one of them is could be that it can bring business. Obviously we have a large following. This is how people can come here. You might get busy. Uh, and another is asking if they feel comfortable with them sharing their location because you know, the health department and all of these, you know, law enforcement, like they do look online and should they see this, they're going to go to the stand and try and see if they have their permits and that could get the stand taken down, you know? Um, and that yeah. could impact, the the vendor and it has happened so i think people just need to move with caution and if you do have a large following just make sure to let the vendor know and most of the time they're cool with it but let the vendor know like hey i have a large following you may get a lot of business from this but there's also going to be a lot of attention on this you know just just being honest with them yeah is i think what's really really important and and making sure that you always get consent when recording yeah that is that is a great note for all of all of the people who are listening who have high followings and go to these places. Keep that in mind and and just be respectful. Well, Janet, I just want to say thank you for joining us. This has been a super illuminating conversation. We'll have to have you back sometime for an update on all of these situations. Um, but if people are looking for you in the meantime, where can they find you in your reporting? Yeah, of course. So LA Taco is the first place. So LATaco.com. Um, but as far as social media goes, um, on IG, I'm under underscore Janet, J-A-N-E-T-T-E, underscore V as in Victor. And then on Twitter, Janet, underscore, underscore V as in Victor. Uh, and wow. I update and post all my stories there. And I, I often also do like video uh, updates as well for those who didn't read the article. <laughs> Uh, well we'll be sure to post all of your handles all of your recent reporting down there as well i'll also post links to to the uh to the establishment down in long beach you mentioned and uh and we'll that'll all be in the show notes for listeners uh but janet thank you so much for joining us 
thank you again for having me excited to, to hear the episode and share it myself so thank you again so much for the opportunity Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Janet Fiafana, for joining us and for really breaking down a pretty complex situation. If you like what you heard today, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a rating, review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. We'll be back next week with another epic episode, but if you're looking for me in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and threads at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E. L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find me on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.